Hey guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome back to this week's No Limits, the Scott Harvath Podcast. So what's new this week, Mike? Hey, not much, but we're on book two. The Scott Harvath Podcast is plugging along. We are here, book two. Pretty good one. I, I mean, not as good as the last one we read, but pretty good. We're, we're going to get into all that. Yeah, no, it's it's fun to like just get into this new series. I find myself maybe because we went so hard into, uh, you know, Mitrap and Vince, that I'm, I keep like pulling these things and I I compare them to the two, even though like I I I then have to tell myself like I don't want to do that, but right. it's just it's like the first thing I think about sometimes. So it's been kind of hard to to do that. But yeah, no, book two, excited to talk about that today. But we also had some other big news. We launched. Uh, no Limits, the Thriller Podcast. The Thriller Podcast. And our first episode is already out. Hope you guys can check out Andrews and Wilson. They are just a rock star duo. And their old stuff, the Tier 1 series, their new stuff, the Shepherd series. And they even wrapped up that interview, giving us an exclusive about some of their next steps and new stuff coming out, including some science fiction adventure. That sounded really interesting, so... Man, got to pick up Andrews and Wilson. That was a great way to kick off the Thriller podcast. Yeah, we got another interview to share with you about Ward Larson coming on that feed, and we're going to be diving in. We have, we have to pick our first book that we want to cover uh, on that. So we're, we're, we're going to sort of be doing some other books. If you haven't listened to the trailer, you haven't subscribed yet, go listen, No Limits, the Thriller podcast. But sort of anything that wasn't Brad Thor, we, we talked about it last episode, but again, just to give an update, um, anything that's not Brad Thor, Scott Harvath related, we're shuttling to that new feed, and uh, as well as gives us an opportunity to, you know, maybe we should just go ahead, since Terminalist is coming out, we should just jump right into Terminalist. Yeah, I'm thinking of doing that, and Mark Harris, one of our patrons and followers, asked if we could release a schedule ahead of time, maybe, you know, six months out, what we'll be covering, so... Look forward to that. We'll definitely post what books we'll cover there on the new feed, the No Limits, the Thriller podcast. We're definitely going to do some new releases. So Chris Howdy's book comes out in just a week or so. Right. Then Jack Carr's new book comes out in a month or so. So we'll cover the Terminalist and the new one. Then we definitely want to get into the Mark Graney stuff in advance of the Gray Man movie. So I think those are going to be the three big names for May, June, and July. Howdy, Carr. And grainy. So read up. Before we get to Path of the Assassin, though, we have to thank our patrons. And so it's the end of the month, and we never did the April giveaway. We've got our first autographed Scott Harvath book to raffle off. Boom. What which one is it, Mike? Well, you actually you have, have a, a dealer's choice. Okay. Right. Winner's choice. We've got copies of Spymaster. Athena Project, The Apostle, Code of Conduct, Hidden Order, The Last Patriot, The Apostle, The First Commandment, Full Black, and Foreign Influence. All those are autographed copies by Brad Thor. We're going to be giving away month by month to each of our patrons. So, first person up has a big choice of books. I'm going to spin that wheel. And we've got... Bridget W. Whoa, Bridget W. There you go. Bridget, thank you for being a patron. Out of all those choices, hit us up, tell us which one you want, and we'll get it shipped out to you. Can't say thank you enough to our patrons. Right. I do have one more thing, one last thing I had to say, and a big happy birthday to you, man. Hey, uh, We haven't you, had, had a chance to pod since you had your birthday. Um. So yeah, big happy birthday to Mike. We even got a little... A little happy birthday uh, shout out from a loyal patron, a little Dawn. She 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 uh, reposted her picture of the the enemy of the gates cake and said happy birthday to you. So Let yeah, tell happy you, birthday to Mike. I'm happy to wait to see a picture of the next birthday cake, the oath of loyalty cake. So ooh, that'll be good. Looking forward to that, Dawn. Yeah, thanks a lot to all our our followers. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for the shout outs. Hey, it's time yes, though. Yes, yes. We're getting into Path of the Assassin, Chris. You like to hit us up. I was a little shocked by some of these scores. So this just probably just shows you that we shouldn't believe any of these scores, you know. So, Path of the Assassin, book two, 
first published July of 2003. Uh, so I didn't realize that Lions came out in 2002. Mm-hmm. That's right after 9-11. All of that is, you, know, you could you could definitely tell that that was put into this work and is on Brad's mind when he's writing this, obviously, you know. And it's different from what we saw. We saw the progression of Vince a little bit because he, he started before 9-11. Right. And then the attacks happened and then he sort of shifts um, his focus, right? But yeah, so Goodreads for book two, Path of the Assassin, has it at, at a 4.18, which is higher than Lions of Lucerne. I, I kind of don't agree with them. I, I think that Lions is a a better book. Scandalous. In a, and I think it also has a higher Amazon rating of 4.6. That's so high. That's like... And, and on Goodreads, it, it had a lot of... So on Goodreads, it had like 22,000 reviews. Let me look up. I forgot to write down what um, Lions... Either way, though, that's that's way higher than a lot of the Mitch Rapp books on the Amazon score. Am I wrong? Yeah, so Lions has almost double the reviews at, at 37,000. So okay. I'm guessing like, you know, bigger when you add more size. variation, bigger sample size. Yeah, but still, no, that, that that's not right. That's not right. Especially considering, I don't want to spoil too much, but next week on part two of Path of the Assassin, we'll be giving our thriller scorecard rankings and i don't know if i would have gone that high on goodreads or amazon reviewing this one so you'll hear what our final numbers are next week but a lot of great things about this book a lot of critiques about this book as well i mean being brad's second right i think that definitely comes through in this one a little bit more than lions but at the same time it does have some amazing scenes one in which I'm chomping at the bit to talk with you about. I wonder if we're going to be on the same page about that one scene. And this book is not star for action. Uh, that I'll tell you that much. Oh, nonstop. Oh, the whole way through. Yeah. All right. So let me give you the summary. After rescuing the president from the kidnappers in Thor's roaring debut, The Lions of Lucerne, Secret Service agent Scott Harvath shifts his attention to rooting out, capturing, or killing all of those responsible for that plot. As he prepares to close out his list, a bloody and twisted trail of clues pointed towards one man, the world's most dangerous terrorist. Only one problem remains. Harvath and his CIA-led team has no idea what the man looks like. With no alternative, they are forced to recruit a civilian, a woman who has survived a brutal hijacking and is now the only person who can positively ID their quarry. From the burning deserts of North Africa to the winding streets of Rome, Harvath must have a must brave a maelstrom of bloodshed deception before the world is engulfed in flames. It hits all the main major points in that the little author summary. It does. Yeah, I I don't know I don't know where you want to start besides where you always start us. I guess let, let's you know, I like to give you the Amazon <laughs> summary, you like to give us what, Mike. Well, I think you know what I like to do to share my thoughts in the form of a limerick. And indeed, I pick up where you left off with that summary, mentioning Rome and North Africa and all the places that Harvath goes. There once was a world traveler named Scott. From city to city, the bad guys he sought. A silver-eyed villain who'd done plenty o' killin', Harvath must untangle the knot. From Macau to Switzerland and Cairo he'll go. Then on to Chicago, Libya, and Tunisia, you know. In Napoli and Capri, then Rome and Frascati, a path of death and destruction in tow. I'm amazed you were able to hit every single, uh, almost every single city that he goes. You missed uh, Washington, D.C. pretty much. That was it. Comes to D.C., but dude, then there's those random scenes where they go to Camp Perry down in Richmond and Williamsburg. And then they go to another training facility, the Delta training facility. What was that? Harvey Point in North Carolina at Fort Bragg. Right. I mean, they're all over the place in this. All right. So I think we just started off. Hold on. I think before we start, that's got to become a segment on the show. The Scott Harvath Travel Guide. Oh, it has to. We need to check off. (laughs) You know, like me and my wife, we we bought this uh, little scratch off map thing yeah 
you know, we've done a little bit of traveling. Uh, nowhere near as like I'm pretty sure Scott Harvath in this one book, maybe even half this book has visited more countries than me and my wife have traveled on in our entire life. And you know, I studied abroad. I was able to visit a little bit over there. We've gone. We need we a map. Did our honeymoon over there. Like, yeah. yeah, no, we need a map to track. And this is just this doesn't even include every place he went when he was in the Secret Service, when he was in Devgru, when he was on the Polar Seals. This is just in the two books alone. He's uh, been everywhere, man. Dude, I didn't even mention Jerusalem. He does go. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't get Jerusalem. Yeah. In Jerusalem, I think I said Chicago. I said Libya. I said Tunisia. Switzerland? Yeah, I mentioned that. Macau. He's just all over the place. All right. Dude, did you see that article I sent you, speaking of traveling? I did. Okay. The one about Brad Thor running for president? Because I, I, I'd support that. Yeah, there was some random tweet where he said he'd run for president. But while I was looking at that, there was an article about him in his younger years. He did a travel series. Mm. He produced his own TV series. I've watched that travel series. It was on PBS, right? It was. Traveling Light with uh, Brad Thor and, and yes, some lady. Yes, I want... That needs to come back. Yeah. He was like a travel... He's that. That's... It comes through in his novels. He loves to travel. Oh, yeah. He's a travel enthusiast. He's really going for it here, man. He's doubling down. I love it. I love it. And in the last book, how it was the wine, the wine, you know, that tied the plot together or that was this motif that kept coming up. This time it's the chain of restaurants in Italy, the Buon Ricordo restaurants. I feel like that had to come from his research on the travel series. He looked like he was in his 20s when he did that series. Oh, super young. Super young. I think it was made in the 80s. I think he, you know, Scott could easily write for like Lonely Planet, right? And you know, the, those little blurbs that they put in for like this one little area of the city. It's it's something that Brad. I keep, sorry, I, I sometimes I say Scott, sometimes I say sometimes I say Brad. I'm talking about Brad here. <laughs> Brad could write for Lonely Planet, and you know that little blurb that he wrote about the wine in in, in Lions about you know how it from what is it like some ice wine South you can really get yeah exactly and then in this one i love the description of each of these each of these restaurants is is part of this group and they all have their signature dish and then it's put on a plate you know like that's that's awesome that, that would make me want to travel there he's able to describe things and put you in the place and make you want to be there want to visit these things oh totally and i mean that just comes from experience i'm trying to find a list of places they went to on his show the the paris episode is on youtube and man i'm trying to 27 year old he produced these when he was 27 years old for pbs and that's way before he got into writing i think right because if his book was in 2002 yeah i mean that's crazy traveling light traveling light so maybe we call it traveling light a scott harveth travel guide traveling heavy Traveling heavy. That's our new segment. Traveling heavy. Yeah, traveling heavy because he's he's not traveling light. He's no, he is traveling heavy. Um, no, that's got to be. Well, we're going to recap every single location that he goes to in the books going forward. Maybe at the end we could just generate a map. <laughs> That'd be sick. <laughs> Different color coded pins by book. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that oh, that's a great idea. We, we got to get it on this, Mike. <laughs> our our large staff. But I, I wanted to start off by saying, how well do you think, just from a overall view, not getting into nitty gritty yet, how well do you think Brad did in his second book? Because I feel like second books are hard. And yeah. I, I couldn't help but think about some of my least favorite second books. Um, like, I'm going to have to, I'm not going to lie, like, I think Chambers of Secrets is, you know, just, just go Harry Potter, that, like, is one of the weaker books Mm. i think that the third option while i loved it mainly because it reminded me of one of my all-time favorite movies in um the born identity it's kind of a weaker book it had its flaws yeah and like i guess that's not even that that's technically not his second book because he had term limits but it is the second book following up your this great success in transfer power here he's following up Obviously, great success in Lions of Lucerne. And I just think it's hard. 
I, I think I just wanted to put that caveat there out there from the beginning that it is hard to bang out bangers, uh, you know, consistently. And you got to kind of get your groove with these series and either or you just you have like the whole thing sketched out and you just execute it. But I feel like that doesn't always happen. Yeah, I feel like this book, Brad plays up his strengths and knocks it out sure. of the park, but is still a little raw in some areas that he will absolutely crush over the next couple of books. I felt like the geopolitical stuff here was a little weak, his grasp on the international tensions around the Palestinian-Israel conflict was kind of neglected. It was kind of like a side story or the background story when, dude, if you blow up, this is insane, if you blow up the Kaaba in Mecca and you blow up Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, that's that's like insane. That is like war, world-ending, complete war chaos. And it kind of is just a, a side note here. Like, oh, the Kaaba blew up. Dude, that's massive. And that's bold. So I feel like the action scenes are incredible. Some of the character development is really well done. And like we saw in the first book, the kind of unraveling the mystery, Scott following a thread, playing detective and picking up on all these clues is woven together intricately. But then some of the big items that happen almost don't pack as much of a punch as I think they should. I almost felt like there's two books here. Uh, I, I, I we, we do say that sometimes, but often we say that when with like transitions where like the first half is different than the second half. Mm. But to me, there's the whole hand of God plot. All those attacks were interesting and like, you know, gripping and I, I wanted just to see Scott go after the hand of God, but like Scott doesn't is never even looking for the hand of God. Like they're no. so focused on what the, con- the the consequences of the hand of God is going to bring out Abu Nidal or Abu Nidal's son because of the hand of God attacks. I wanted to see, you know, kind of like what you said. He gets it right in terms of he's he's hitting all the major points that would potentially cause a war between you know the Arabs and the Jews, but he just scrapes the surface yeah and doesn't go deep into that and then you have sort of the different uh story with scott you know trying to track this this assassin who doesn't even realize to the very end that this is the same assassin that is now doing the hand of god attacks so and at the very end i feel like they were tied together a little bit loosely um but i wanted to see more of them because i liked each of them individually you know if that makes sense or not more of them. I I just I I wanted to read them individually. I, I would rather prefer a book about that and then a book about that. I, you know, obviously you can't fully uh, uh, dissect them because they're obviously at the end related. But I felt that there was too much packed in here. Yep. And there, there's times where th- there's scenes where I'm like, why are we spending like ten chapters with trying to train Meg? Exactly. That. Yep. That's exactly my point. And why are we spending 10 chapters in Italy, like, rushing towards the end? Shopping in Capri for what reason? Just because they needed to change their clothes? Yeah, so I think you're right. It's two books, not in the first half, second half sense, but if you think of balance, it leaned very heavily, and the longer story here is Meg Cassidy and bringing her into the world of assassins and spies and espionage. Yet I cared less about that, but it took up more of the pages. Right. Where I cared more about this Ari Shone, who is in one scene in the beginning, magically the reappears the at the very exactly. end. Well, I, I was interested in his relationship to what Masada is doing, what the hand of God is, how they're capturing them, what the leads are. Yet that was minimized, and the attacks themselves were minimized. The shootings at the mosque or the explosions in Mecca, all that was minimized for the sake of playing up the time with Scott and Meg. And I'm just not sure that was the right balance or the right approach. You almost could have had like, you know, most of those attack scenes were one short chapters mm-hmm. in, in between, you know, sort of like Scott's actions, right? 
you you could add multiple chapters of that. And I don't know why, you know, I guess because Scott has his plan, but they, they never sort of mention trying to figure out who is who is the hand of God, you know? They, right. they sort of make these loose connections of like, oh, it's probably the Israelis, but like, we're not, are we not going to check up on that? Like, <laughs> are we going to call Ben Friedman and see if he's actually doing it, you know? Yeah, it could have woven those two separate plots together a bit more. It felt a little forced at the end when the reveal is kind of who the hand of God really was and who was pulling the strings. I didn't get that over the last 20, 30 chapters. I was so caught up with Meg's training, Meg's relationship right. with Scott. It was like that we kind of moved away from that plot. All right. Well, let's 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 not jump to the end. Yeah. Good point. Good point. That's why I didn't give it away. But one thing I want to say that starts strong and stays strong is these really amazing action sequences. When yes. we kick it off in Macau and Scott's on a gambling boat. That, that's fucking awesome. And and then, so I love the fact that he's won in Macau. Like, whoa, this is something new. He's on a gambling boat. But how it links in with a small sub-story from Lions. Right. I liked, I liked how it was a continuation. We, we had some threads to pull. Right. And what was that operation called that went wrong in Lions? Uh, rapid Rescue. Rapid Return. Right. Rapid Return. And that was when we've got intelligence that the kidnappers of the president were in the safe house in Israel. And so Israel and Mossad helps us surveil the safe house. But when our guys get there, which Scott had reservations about sending in a team, yes, it blows. And Scott already told the president, you know, we shouldn't have acted on such little intel. It wasn't reliable. This mission was screwed from the get-go. Well, Scott now is given carte blanche from the president to track down any and whatever leads we have that caused those men to die in that attack. And so, yeah, I just love that he's tracking this gambler or he's at this casino tracking Jamek, one of the guys who they have intel on slipped away from that explosion in Israel. And he's got a contact there. He's with a CIA guy. I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, no, and the the chase scenes. There, there, there's so many chase mm -hmm. scenes in this book. That, that was a really good one with, his counterpart and then all of a sudden like the one guy gets drugged and it's followed up with an explosion and there's so many like scott narrowly evading an explosion um it's it's just awesome jam-packed I, I i this book does not lack for action that's for sure yeah and a lot of it is like car chases so they got the audi tt car roadster chases, going through Macau. Boat chases yep there's the boat motorcycle chases there's that one ex chases. explosion in chicago where Meg is in that alleyway and she's trying to back down the street and Scott takes the wheel and does that 180. Right. That was pretty cool. There's an AEV. What what's the what's the what's the vehicles they do in the sands? Oh, the vehicle in the desert. Yeah, forget it. But it's all equipped for desert warfare. It's got like right. anti-tank missiles on it, stinger missiles. That was pretty cool. Each time though, each one of these chases there's always a lead because of the silver-eyed assassin. There's a silver-eyed assassin who Scott or Meg can see on each one of these attacks where, where they're chasing. And he knows this person is linked to Abu Nidal, might even be Abu Nidal's son. And they need to capture and identify this person before the attacks across the Middle East continue and get us closer and closer to war. So... At the end, we find out that this assassin was actually a female. Did you pick up on that throughout the the different attacks? I tried to go back and reread some of the scenes, and I think Brad did a very good job. Of, like I just immediately assumed it was a man, right? And Same. obviously, she portrayed like like the pool boy who was a man, so she obviously is able to disguise herself very well, but. Brad did not tip at all that it was a female. Like no. th that was like a that was a drop. Oh, oh shit! Moment, you know. Yeah, I'll agree. That was one of those rug pulls, and it just changes everything you thought you knew about right. this assassin and what's going on. Yeah, that was kind of cool. 
it, it reminded me of a, a of a another sort of body items assassin so we had the we now have the silver eyed assassin we previously we had the blonde haired assassin like i like these assassins that are you know just one description of of some sort of either their eyes or, or their hair the description of her eyes like this uh the silver but they can turn to like jet black that was a very cool description and neat little you know characterization there's even one of the covers that tries to mimic that. Yeah. That I, I thought was very interesting. Um, the German cover. So yeah, the German cover. Yeah, of course, leave it to the Germans. Ein Scott Harvath thriller. Their covers are always crazy. All right, so all that's going on, these chases through Macau, and then I think they match up with that same silver-eyed assassin in Switzerland, and later on there's an explosion at the hospital uh, in Chicago. So they're all over the world. But eventually, Scott has to liaise with the CIA. Hold on, before you get to the CIA, you you're, you you mentioned Switzerland. I, I think we have to pour out a little, a little Hennessy for we get Claudia's gone. Like she's brushed oh, aside so quickly. Dude, you're right. You're right. <sighs> Man, this book was so long. I kind of forget that a lot of storylines kind of wrap up and a bow is put on them in the beginning. I was yeah. disappointed. I I was heartbroken when Claudia was written off the off the page. Well, I I kind of like her better than Meg. Like I spoiler think so. alert. Like I think so too. You 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 know that none of these like that's going to be a recurring theme for Scott. Right. Um, that he can't hold a woman, and you know obviously that was a fear that Mitch had, right? And why why it took him so long to open up. Uh, whereas Scott is way more able to open up to these women and invite him into his life but he knows that they both even say it right that they have to they're going to pick the profession over their personal life every time any day of the week um but yeah i just thought it was a was a cold goodbye in the beginning with, with claudia and they, yeah that, that's what we we have the the silver knight assassin is there trying to not kill her but kill gerhardt minor right anyone who has connections to the lines has to go yeah I remember that conversation hit me kind of hard of like, they tried to make it work, they couldn't make it work, they each had their different lives, so dedicated to their careers, so, see you later, Claudia, but I did like her, and I think you're right, I'm, I think I identified with her a bit more than Meg Cassidy. Alright, so you, you mentioned the CIA, I, I think this is a very interesting aspect, right? and I think it's a through line that... Brad puts throughout his series the dynamic between the relationships between the FBI, the CIA, the sec- obviously the Secret Service, and it's a different vibe than what we've gotten before. You know, obviously we we just came up an entire series where the CIA was painted as the the best of the best, right. and you know the FBI is were the bumbling fools, and uh, I, well, I guess Mitch had some FBI friends, but. Scott does not like the CIA. Uh, no. it, there's multiple times in this book where he has to remember that not all the people who work with the CIA are, you know, bumbling idiots. And like, because there's one kid who I'm almost positive becomes a major character in the series with uh, Gordo uh, Avigliano, right? Yeah. I liked Avigliano's entrance, too. Yeah, that was funny. He shows up to basically pass on papers to Scott, and Scott's ripping him a new one. He's calling him out on missteps. He's, you know, pulling a, he almost pulled a gun on him just to catch him off guard. He's like, man, you, you got to shape up if you're going to be in this line of work. And thrown in with that character are a bunch of quips about the CIA. You know, oh, I guess they don't have their act together. I guess they're still screwing things up. Oh, they'll take anybody over there. And I thought, like, oh, you know, okay, he's just coming on strong. But no, that kept up. The The digs on the CIA kept up the whole story, even to the point where he pulls Meg out of training there because he feels they're going to screw her up, and she needs a proper education, and she gets that with the Delta Boys. So it's like, man, the CIA really gets a bad, bad rap from, from Brad here. And that's all encapsulated with Rick Morell. Right. What did you think about Rick Morell 
being such a piece of trash and really getting under Scott's skin and not only being annoying, but to the point where he could jeopardize the mission because he's not playing along. Right. I think he goes through a little bit of a character arc and in the end is obviously very appreciative of Scott. Um, So he comes back around. I don't want to spoil for the the audience like who haven't read the you know the next couple of books like but Rick Rick comes back um in in, in an interesting way a couple of different times uh, in different books so he's a he's a character and I think he he shows everything that can go wrong with the lack of interagency dialogue mm-hmm. and also all of his men like just like. Don't people know that Scott's gave the president? Like, like they they don't give him any slack. You know, no. like it's one thing to like, all right, you're gonna, but hit the, I'm sure there's one guy on on the team who knows that Rick is a as a prick, and agrees with the way Scott treats him, but they're all just like very skeptical of like, oh, who's who's the Secret Service guy? I don't know. I feel like there'd be more. There should be more. You know, just respect for. You know, I I feel like if someone in the FBI you know, see Scott, they're going to respect him a little bit. Yeah. So I like when the story seems real because there's a lot of, you know, ribbing between the different agencies. The secret service guy gives some jabs to the CIA people, you know, and the spooks. And then some of the actual operators who maybe are army trained or maybe who are seals are giving it to each other about the different branches. Right. Right. But I was a little taken aback by how it, spills into the operation and starts affecting you know the tactics on the ground and all that comes to a head with what's my favorite scene of the book by far and could be i know it's early to say this but could be one of the cooler action sequences of the series i i really i think i'm going to stand by this being top three or top five action sequences the airplane scene. Dude. This book like turns to a whole new like, you know, we're we're sort of plodding along. We're like, ooh, I'm sort of intrigued. What are these attacks that are happening? Who is this silver dyed assassin? Obviously, you know, Scott's wrapping up stuff from the last book. But then as soon as we get into this airplane scene, and more so as soon as Scott I think I wrote in one of my notes was chapter five chapter whatever Scott takes over at like when he oh, takes man. over and decides to jump onto the plane with these suction cups. Oh my God. <laughs> t- takes the, the demo bag and it blows a hole in the roof and then like has to come in like, Dude. uh, like Spider-Man, like upside down and has to shoot people. Uh, that was like, again, this book is not star for action. It's, it's amazing. Dude. And this is one of the best scenes I've action scenes I've ever read. And the description of the tactics and exactly. like the, the, the weaponry, like that's something that Brad does great. Um, I thought it was funny how they talk about, you know, it's the same thing with Vince where he wrote like cellular phone or like, um, <laughs> what, what was the thing? Like, you know, the dictaphone, di- digi- digital phone. No, he said digital phone. phones early on yep. uh, before cell phones. Yep. They talk about the, the flat lens cameras. And I'm yes. like, Wait, what's a non-flat lens cam? You know, like I had sort of the I was like, "Wait, I'm I'm old." Like or I'm 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 not as old as as I thought I was cuz or you know, I had a, I guess a feeling that my what well, my kid would have like what is a typewriter, you know? Uh Right. right. When, when they were talking about how like, "Oh, these are like coming new age things to have a camera with a flat lens." That was that was kind of funny. Oh yeah. Some of that really dates the stories. But they but the action man. Oh, he's got and when he puts those anklet suction cups on, kind of dangles over through this hole he just blew through the cockpit and starts shooting guys hanging upside down, I nearly lost it. That was so cool. And at the same time, Meg, who was kind of like, what, a PR executive or something for the airline, you know, so big she was, wig. That was hired by the airline, yeah. Yeah, in the corporate world. But she does have some training. Her father taught her to shoot and a little bit of self-defense after an incident where she was attacked earlier. And so she she did have some skills to defend herself, but never thought she'd have to use them. And she starts organizing a resistance on this plane. Were you getting a sense of Anna in the White House in transfer of power with how helpless she was 
and how Mitch, I think, always, he didn't harbor a grudge, but he always hoped people as innocent or defenseless as her, like, could one day learn to protect themselves. Like, her, her parents and her dad and her brothers were cops. But Mitch was always like, but you don't even know anything about this business. I feel like he harbored a resentment there where Meg, she quickly realizes that she can rise in these occasions. She can take over because of past trauma. She's never going to let that happen again. I mean, she freaking takes out who it turns out was Abu Nadal, who was trying to rape her. Um, she defends herself and I just see she slash him with a knife or I forget. How she got she free. shoots him in the head. She shoots him in the head. Yeah, she shoots him and then she picks up the gun and she starts like basically just taking over the plane and clearing out the terrorists. That was wild. So I, I did get Anna vibes in the terms of like this is like the ultimate Anna, you know, like, like we get the opposite of opposite of the spectrum with transfer of power Anna. And then we have sort of a very similar backstory. Wasn't Anna also like raped or like had a confrontation? I forget. I might might be mixing mixing it up with something else, but but Meg is for like. Do you buy in the fact that she would be able to pick up the gun and like be able to do? Was she doing headshots like on all these terrorists? I mean, I guess she sort of fumbles into it, so it's like a you know because right. she's obviously being attacked. I think one of the security guards like was able to break three, break break free take the guy down she was able to take the gun but then this leads to like there's at one point where she like shoots the one guy and then because he's coming up the stairs she thinks like oh i don't want the guy to go roll back down the stairs so she quickly grabs him so he he like can't tip off that oh he got shot i'm like yep. wait she all of a sudden she's now like she's scott harvath <laughs> you know she went into scott harvath mode yeah, um, those instincts just kicked in i don't know i kind of sure. bought it because her dad did give her some training yeah, and she did say that she took like self a bunch of self protection classes. So, right. yeah, no, I mean, maybe this is a uh, a PSA for the Protectors podcast. You know, learn some <laughs> self protection. You never know what situation you will be put into. But she also got some help because the Chicago mayor. What was he? Uh, was he a ranger? I think both. Both just. Well, I mean, obviously, this is writing, right? Uh, Brad puts both the Chicago mayor and the CEO of United, who was on the flight, you know, because it's right. a whole like United thing. We're both ex-military, so she knows yeah. like, all right, I, I have all these guns, but I, I don't know who's to gonna. Them. And she even what she, I think she sees like three passengers that are like part of like one of the academies, um, gives them guns. Yep. She I think she even says like one of her friends who are in the PR form like he comes back and he's dressed like Rambo or something like that, or like ready <laughs> ready to go to the OK Corral or something. I just. I, I imagine some funny, no, like funny scenes in a movie where, like, you know, they're trying to get back at the terrorists. Half this book really reminded me of Die Hard, mm. or 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 Die Hard, um, as well as when they're like hopping around trying to find these places. Like all, all three of the Die Hards, um, the good ones at least. So, yeah, dude, I could see that. But you know, one other complication with the plane scene is that due to the political game, the CIA. This is where Scott, sorry, this is where Brad, bringing in his geo geopolitics. This is one of the right. scenes where I think like it, it it was really good, and I wanted more of this throughout the story. With you know, you you can explain it more, but I just thought like that. I, yes, Brad, like th that is what I want. This plays to Brad's strengths. That would was what I was saying before. Is though this book I don't think is anywhere near Lions of Lucerne, and it's really hard to write a second book, and it has its faults. There's glimpses of Brad's strength, and this airplane scene is one where that comes through, and then the connection between this 1985 hijacking. Brad is able to give this description of what happened, I think, in Malta with Egypt and their Unit 777. So they're like this Egyptian special forces hostage rescue team. But Scott knows by bringing them in, that's a major liability. Because back in this 1985 hijacking in Malta, they apparently, or a Maltese flight, they just went hog and just opened fire. And like 70 or 80 of the casualties were not due to the hijacking. It was this Egyptian forces unit just spraying bullets when they entered. And they were a true liability. Yet, Rick Morell and the CIA brought them in. 
and was really relying on them as part of the game plan because all this is taking place in Cairo and they're playing the political game and Scott realizes that's bullshit. Well, I'll push back. I I don't think Rick brought him in. It's like Rick doesn't have the cojones or yeah, but he played along the wherewithal to push back with the politicians. Um, but that's the problem. Wanting wanting them to be involved. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and that's one one of the things I think why Rick is not a good you know leader, and obviously you know he, he clams up when the the plan doesn't doesn't go go as planned, right? When you know it's they're on like what would be a the jet uh, what is that called jetway, mm-hmm. and it's going to be moved into place. And yes, exactly. Then hop on the airplane, but it like it essentially stops here, so then they have to like jump a huge I'm I'm envisioning like this huge chasm that they have to jump and run and, and get on the pl- the slippery plane, right? Right. But it's Brad's ability to one, know about this incident, be able to research it, and then know how to intertwine this little interesting story that, you know, I personally have never heard of before. I don't know if you had. I'm sure some of our readers who are, you know, history buffs know about this, but be able to intertwine it interlace it into the story exactly and enhance the story yep. and make me like i now think about that so therefore i googled about what this force was like and i just right. wanted to learn about it and I, I feel like that that's what brad brings to these books and heightens it and lifts it up and i for the hand of god stuff i wanted more of that i agree for not really buying in giving a hint to our thriller <laughs> pod scorecard for not really buying into the hand of God and their motivations and thinking there's something fishy going on behind the scenes, which there is, I I love the snippets that we got. So the same way the plane scene, Brad referenced this Egyptian Unit 777 and their, their prior hostage rescue situation, with the hand of God, and particularly the attack on the mosque in Mecca, he references 1979. And I read these thrillers, hear this little historical tidbit. I just want to go off and research it. And this was wild. There was a hostage situation, some extremists trying to overthrow the House of Saud in in Saudi Arabia. And they, they took over the entire Grand Mosque in March of 1979. And Brad talks about how there was a French investigator who did the investigation of this this hostage scene and he had detailed plans of the grand mosque in mecca and all the tunnels underneath the city and dude did you catch the reference guess whose name is dropped in this book the troll yeah oh yes the troll is dude. The tr- i had that to bring up later yes dude the troll kept as an insurance policy archives by this French investigator who investigated the 1979 hostage situation at the Mecca Mosque. And the troll keeping these documents is how the terrorists were able to attack the mosque. And Brad writes, quote, Through a thoroughly detestable little man known as the troll who dealt in the purchase and sale of highly classified information. That's how the terrorists got the plans to blow up the mosque. That's wild. And if you're not looking for it, you don't know it's there. That that line is just okay. It means nothing. It means nothing, dude. But that now, now that we know who the troll is and how you know big of a character he becomes, and oh yeah, spoiler, but friend to Scott, he becomes right. <laughs> That's huge. And like. I can't can't believe we got mentioned the troll in this book. This is when he was talking about it. That literally blew my mind because if you ask me if the troll was mentioned this early, I would have been like, there's no way. Yeah, no, same. Do you think, I mean, we've talked about different approaches authors can take. Do you think Brad knew when he wrote this line, the troll was somebody he wanted to go back and flesh out. He was planting a seed in case the series goes you know, pretty long. Or do you think it was later on when he needed a character like the troll? He went back. Oh, remember that line I wrote, you know, back in path of the assassin. How much, how much do you think he knew what he wanted to do with this character? 
I think he knew this idea of of the character of the troll and how he wanted what he what he wanted him to be, and that he knew that if you know, obviously, given that he's going to get this massive book deal, like he was eventually going to flesh him out. Right. You know whether or not he knew that he was going to become a. I think originally, like he was just purposely meant to be an adversary to Scott. You know, to be mm-hmm. a villain in one of these future books. Mm-hmm. I think Scott. I think Brad had that from the very beginning, and, and particularly a villain who has this treasure trove of documents. These really right. he, damning, he's a, important deals documents. in the black market. Exactly, and is it you know very adapt to getting information type thing. I think that that's what Brad had that laid out from the very, if if not lines, definitely in this book. It's kind of a mashup of. Remember those characters from Term Limits, Augie, and who is the other one? Who deals in the black market, running these black ops, has this trove of information. The one whose house they attack. And then also Stansfield. Oh, right. How he keeps the documents on everybody. So I I really feel like those are some tropes that that Brad is playing up here that really work. So what do you say? We finished the airplane scene. We went all around the world already. And we're not even halfway done with the book. So what do you say if we pick up in part two with a lot of the stuff that happens in the desert? Because we are still off to Tunisia and Libya. And we learn a lot more about who's behind the hand of God and who Abu Nidal's kids are. Notice I say kids plural. That's a reveal. And we'll pick up with that, race to the end of the book, and give you our cover discussion and Thriller Pod scorecard on part two. There was one thing. We, we mentioned his name, but he gets introduced. You sort of forgot about it in your limerick. Scott does go to Israel, right? Right. And Ari Shon is the lone survivor because they had Mossad help, right? We, in rapid that's return. Dropped, that's dropped in lines. Mossad was there, but they couldn't, like, you know, they couldn't get actually into the building enough. They were just sort of from afar. And we meet him. And we believe that he's going to be a target. Scott wants to go see him, see what sort of information he can have, because we know that this one guy who was in Macau, right, was involved with that explosion. And Ari thinks that the assassin is after him. Yep. And there's some interesting pictures in his study or in his office, whatever, that are going to play a big role later on. Yep. And the motivation, like, we, we don't know yet his motivation for why he wants to deal with Scott. But I, I thought this was a very interesting character, and maybe we can talk more about him in, in the end, but right. I wanted more of him. Same. But yeah, I thought it was cool how Brad is able to bring in this character from the previous book, you know, because we thought everyone died. Like, you know, exactly. Didn't, they didn't ever mention that there was, there was this lone survivor who sort of crept away, and there's rumors that he possibly then eventually died, right? Right. Um, but so might yeah, have some wanna, intel on what happened right. that night in rapid return that so many of you know, our men and the SEALs were lost on that mission. Yeah, we're, we're wrapping up uh, part one right around right around chapter like 25 and <laughs> what, 28? And, but there's 70 chapters in this book. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. So there, we got we got a lot to talk about in part two. So you texted me that you're like, are these books just really really long, or does Armand Schultz just read really really slowly? No, these books are long, man. <laughs> yeah, because I don't have unlike I have a lot of the physical copies of the Mitrap series. I don't have as many hard copies or paperbacks of Brad. I I, I have them all on Kindle, and I've listened to them all via either audible audiobook whatever getting them from the library they're a bit thicker so i'm used to you know a typical vince flynn book right being right around nine to eleven hours with george Goodell reading it but yeah like i put on i put it on at 1.5 speed was it like 14 and it says 14 hours. and so like the new thing with scribe now is actually adjust your time based on how fast based you're reading your it speed. did you say five um, times speed no, one one point five. Oh, one point five. I was about to say, whoa. Okay. Um, one point. But you still speed, have even on one point five. I bet the book is still twelve hours long. 
No, it was fourteen hours with one point five speed. Oh up. man! So it's like it's like a sixteen hour book Whoa. if you're just reading it normally or like seventeen hour book. Like so, I was like, damn. I think unfortunately that's felt that's felt in Path of the Assassin way more than it was in Lines of Lucerne. I could yes. take fifteen hours of Lines of Lucerne any day. Where this one, the balance was a little off. Like we talked about, the Ari Shone scene was one scene that I thought was so meaningful and that I was really jiving with. But then other scenes are played out and expanded upon and just too long where I it doesn't have my attention. The same way some of those really important ones to advance the plot have my attention. I think like where we're going to start off the next pod, going to Chicago and then going to... Well, I guess first we have to go to a hospital and then Chicago <laughs> and then Meg's training. Like we we can go fast during that, but yeah. All right, guys, we hope you liked part one of uh, our discussion on Path of the Assassin. Check out part two next week. We always have to thank our patrons, including our special operator, Sherry F., our special agents, Daryl, Kevin, George, Matt, Don, Dennis, Peggy, Catherine, Ray, Bridget, Jeff, and Mark. Please subscribe, rate, and review using your favorite podcasting platform. You can find us online at thrillerpod.com or on Twitter and Insta at Metropod. And as always, don't drink with a blacksmith's wife. Do you know why that is, Mike? Let me see if I can remember this one. Because something about hammer, you're going to get hammered and... (laughs) You're going to get hammered. Yeah, you're going to get hammered. (laughs) Because you're going to get hammered. Yeah, you're going to get hammered. Yes. Don't drink with the blacksmith's wife. I love... That's going to be my goal is to like get these one, uh, these Scott one-liners and and put them into the end. Yeah. Oh, I like that one. Because they're perfect. That's like... Mitch didn't have that, but Scott has so many of them, so...